Welcome back to the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at the Bulwark. Uh, I am very pleased to be joined today by Will Haygood, uh, who is the author of Colorization, 100 Years of Black Films in a White World. Um, he uh, is the author, the prize-winning historian, biographer, and journalist, uh, and author of Tigerland, which won the Ohioana Book Award uh, and was named runner-up for the Dayton International Peace Prize. Uh, Showdown won the Scribes Book Award and was a finalist for an NAACP Image Award. Um, and you you are also the author of The Butler, uh, which was made into a film directed by Lee Daniels and starred Forrest Whitaker, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Jane Fonda, and Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, so very, very pleased to have you on to talk about uh, colorization and, and the world of Hollywood in general. Thanks for being on the show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Uh, so I, the first thing uh, I want to we, we should we should start at the beginning and your your book uh, essentially starts with um, the birth of a nation, which I, I think a lot of film historians peg as the birth of kind of modern American cinema uh, and in a way is the kind of original sin of Hollywood um, and when it comes to race. Uh, let's talk about that movie and its its prominence, both in the Woodrow Wilson White House and in the culture at large. Yes, um, great. It was a movie that grew out of a novel written, written by Thomas Dixon. Um, and the novel was called The Klansman. It's interesting because Thomas Dixon had gone to Johns Hopkins University and one of his classmates was none other than than the young Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. And so years roll on, Woodrow Wilson becomes the uh, governor of New Jersey and then runs for the White House and wins. And this novel gets a lot of attention, especially in the deep South, all throughout the South. It was a novel written by a Southern sympathizer, Mr. Dixon, whose father had fought in the Civil War. So it was one of those lost cause novels where white Klansmen were heroes and every black uh, was a villain. Uh, and so Thomas Dixon goes to the White House, meets Woodrow Wilson again, he tells the president that his novel has been adapted into a movie and directed by one of the giants of Hollywood at the time, Mr. D.W. Griffith. Uh, and the movie opens and it becomes a sensation. It's a very racist movie. Uh, it ignites outrage amongst the blacks all around the country. Uh, they stage protests uh, and the movie has a uh, showing at the White House. So that really uh, fastens the movie uh, into a very sort of important dynamic. Mm -hmm. This movie had a premiere at the White House, yeah. the citadel of American power. 
And the movie played for four straight years. And it was the first film that really ignited civil protest in this country on a massive scale. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting uh, because this is this is a topic that kind of comes up um, uh, again and again in your book. Is that you know people uh, people were out protesting this movie, which only raised its profile, which right. you know it caused controversy, which 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 uh, in, in which encouraged folks to go see it because they're like, oh, what's this movie everybody's talking about? Um, and and you see this again. Uh, you see this uh, in the Homesteader, Oscar Micheaux's movie uh, that we'll, we'll talk about in a, in a moment here, um, but also with uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song um, and even even Do yeah. the Right Thing. I mean, I like it's it's actually it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, do you think it was I, I mean, do you think it was it, I, to put too blunt a point on it? Do you think it was a good thing or a bad thing to protest the movie like this? I mean, I do you think it just caused more attention to come to it or? Was it so horrifyingly racist that it was worthy of of just signaling how how much uh, it, it disturbed people? Yeah, I mean, I think if you were black, it definitely was a film that you had to go out and raise raise your voice against. Maybe whites looked at it, whereas, yes, it's only raising the movie's profile, but if you were black being beaten mm -hmm. down every day, socially and politically and economically and nearly spiritually in a country where you still were not anywhere near a full citizen, uh, it was definitely worthwhile protesting. I mean, because Many people uh, sort of judge black people from what they saw on the movie screen. I mean, it was a very segregated nation. So it wasn't like every white person knew somebody black. I mm -hmm. mean, very segregated. So blacks really didn't normally, normally live in neighborhoods that were mostly white. I mean, it's a very segregated nation. And so this movie was very harmful to black pride, black sensibility. And so, yes, as they say, what do they say? Uh, uh, you, you know that phrase, no publicity. Yeah, is sure. Horrible. No publicity is bad publicity, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, but the movie yeah. became kind of like a movement, you know, to stand up for your dignity and your rights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it really is interesting to, to look at this because, I mean, I'm, you know, I was, I'm reading your book uh, and it, 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 in it, you talk about how it actually changed the business of showing movies uh, just in general. I mean, here's, here's a line uh, from, from your book. The birth of a nation even helped change the dynamics of how America went to the movies. Theater owners began keeping theaters owner, uh, open with longer hours. They started realizing more than ever the profitability of snacks at their concession stands. Um, and, and you conclude your point here by saying it seemed as if blacks had one more enemy, cinema, which I mean, I, is like a very, again, it's a striking way to start this story of modern American filmmaking. Yes, I think it was important to start the book this way because cinema was new. It was like the moment that somebody had their ride in their first car in the 20s. It, um, um, that sensation would be new. You would 
hold on to that sensation. So if you went and saw this movie on a big wide screen, and it did have a whole lot of technical wizardry that other movies didn't have, split screen, had all kinds of jump cuts, mm -hmm. and it had Woodrow Wilson's prose intercut into the movie. Mm -hmm. So words that he had written before he got to the White House were subtitles of this movie. And so it almost made it seem like the US government had sanctioned this movie because Woodrow Wilson was in the White House and his name was on the screen uh, in this movie uh, uh, portrayed blacks as thieves, murderers, and rapists. Mm. And the movie played for four years yeah. around the country. So it was very devastating for blacks. Yeah. Uh, there were many whites too. You know, there were many whites too who marched with blacks and mm -hmm. who stood outside of these theaters trying to stop the movie from being shown. Some people too, to your point, did think, okay, if we stop this movie, is this not censorship? Is this not censorship? So that was an important frame of thought that also was out there. Yeah. Talked about. Yeah. Um, I mean, it feels like you know, more things change, et cetera. I feel like we're still having yeah. this, this, this argument today. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk about, I want to talk about, please correct me if I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, but Oscar Michaud, is that? You're correct. Okay, You're good. Right. <laughs> Uh, but he, I, 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 when I when I emailed you about about your book, uh, I said I learned more reading this book than I have in in most of the books that I that I read for this uh, podcast because I, I I knew nothing about Oscar Michaud, for instance, mm -hmm. um, uh, and he's a really interesting figure. Let's let's talk about him as uh, kind of the first uh, black American filmmaker. I mean, it's it is a it's a really interesting story. What was his what was his what was his deal and and uh, how how did he uh, you know kind of change. Um, or not change uh, the, the, the face of American filmmaking. Yes, he was just very brave. I mean, he was born in the Midwest and after high school, wanted to venture out. And so he went West, uh, he landed in of all places, South Dakota. He went out there on the Homestead Act, uh, uh, which was passed uh, by Lincoln. And it was President Lincoln who passed the Homestead Act. And it was for, it was really for pioneers, people who wanted to go out west to settle the land. And then the US government would say to you, if you stay on this land for two years or three years or four years and you help us settle the West, you move out there and you become part of this city or this town, then we will allow you to have that land. And so he was a pioneer in the true sense of a word. He gets out there, he starts farming, he does okay. He's bored at night, he starts to write uh, uh, stories about being the only black man uh, out there farming as far as he could see. Uh, 
uh, and he made friends, white farmers and, and men and women. Uh, but these books, uh, these books told the story of his life. And so he had heard about this very devastating film, The Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm. Oscar Michaud gets it in his mind. Well, hey, I'm black. I'm very prideful about my people. Uh, and I've come out West. I've helped settle the West. And maybe I can find someone uh, to help finance an idea of mine, which is to write a script and have my autobiographies turned into film. And so he had a hard time of it at first, but then he started raising money. Uh, he started selling more of his books. Uh, he saved that money and he started filming his short stories, which really, really was amazing. And then he started turning uh, these short stories into longer films. And then he would go to big cities. He would go to Chicago and New York and he would talk to theater owners and he would tell them his story. Hey, I lived out West. I wrote this book. I wrote the screenplay and I filmed it. And so I have a movie in the trunk of my car that I would like to start showing. And yeah. so he did this for years and years and years, and he would just show his movie. I mean, he must have been a strange sight, a black man who did not have any links to Hollywood, mind you, Sonny. There were yeah. no links to Hollywood. He, he just said, well, Hollywood, Hollywood doesn't care about me, doesn't care about my people, so I'm going to do my own thing, which he did. And he really yeah. became the first godfather of black cinema. Um, it, it, it's a really, it's a really amazing story. Again, I, I, I strongly recommend people pick up the book uh, again, which is called Colorization. It's by Will Haygood. It's you can find it on Amazon. It's it's wonderful. Uh, definitely check it out. One one thing that's interesting, and I just had never thought about it because I it 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 had never occurred to me. But you know, the the in in the early years of cinema, we're talking about still a very segregated country, still a very segregated business. Um, how did how did segregation uh, hamper and hinder the efforts to not only get these movies distributed, but also just seen by folks. I mean, I like it, you know, if you have white cinemas and black cinemas, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's fraught. Yes, yes, yes. It certainly is. He was very smart. He would go to black newspapers and black newspaper men in black newspaper women, and he would have them write stories about his odd journey, his strange life. Black filmmaker, those two words weren't really heard a lot in American life. Uh, and so, yes, he was forced to stay inside of a segregated world, but there was a thriving black community in this nation, town to town to town. And there were Blacks who had made money. There were Blacks who had supported Black causes. There was the NAACP. Uh, and there were social groups. Uh, and of course, there was a, a 
great love of the arts, Oscar Michaud was thriving during the Harlem Renaissance, during the Harlem Renaissance in the 1930s. You know, he knew writers, he knew poets, and those people knew him. And so it just really started to snowball and it built and built and built. And he gave other people inspiration to look into the film business and it just started to grow. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, really fascinating guy. Everybody should read up on him. Um, it, do any of his movies still, are, are any of his movies still in circulation? Can, can any of them be seen still or have they all been lost? Yes, some have been lost. There's a, I don't know, there's a fairly good amount of his movies that have been lost, but there have, uh, but there have been some that have been saved. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, he had a fascinating um, eye for talent. He cast Paul Robeson in a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and he knew how to find, he knew how to find talent in Hollywood. Most black actresses, if not all black actresses, uh, had roles as maids. It was Oscar Michaud who first gave black actresses roles that were far more varied than just playing a maid. School teachers and nurses and secretaries and business owners, all this was new. It was really like he was introducing black life to white America via the major motion picture screen. Mm -hmm. you know, when the whites would, would go and see his movies, you know, and whites did go and see his movies. Some people just wanted to go to a film on a Friday or Saturday night. Maybe they go up into Harlem to see his movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. Um, I uh, so let's uh, let's let's move ahead a few years uh, and talk a little bit about Gone with the Wind, which again is another it's another very controversial uh, movie. Hattie McDaniel wins Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, um, but uh, that that you know had its own uh, uh, controversial um, element in the black community. I mean, I'm I, I, I'm I'm curious to get uh, I'm curious to have you talk a little bit about how how. Uh, her her career kind of either evolved or stalled out after Gone with the Wind, um, and also the the reaction that uh, people in the in the black community had to her um, her her performance and just the, the the you know the idea of the mammy role in general. Yes, well, let's start with the author of that book, Miss mm. Margaret Mitchell. Uh, she was born in the South, and she went east to Smith College and, and she saw black students there on that campus and she was rattled by that. So she left school and ran home. Um, and she wanted to write, so she starts writing this big antebellum novel about a family and, and their black maid uh, in the novel 
and the novel came out. It was a big sensation, big, fat, big, fat, juicy novel. Uh, and the black maid was named Mammy. It wasn't even a first or last name, just Mammy. Uh, so the movie has a stunning cast, has Clark Gable, has Vivian Lee, has other stars of the era. Uh, and it becomes a sensation because the book was a sensation. Mm -hmm. um, and it comes out and there is a world premiere of this movie in Atlanta. Uh, Hattie McDaniel uh, is told to not come. It's a Southern very segregated city. So she doesn't come to the premiere. Uh, and she, uh, she's hurt by that. Uh, but this is very, very interesting. There is a black choir, a black church choir that comes out to one of the festivities for the movie rollout the night before the premiere. And this black choir from a local church has a little kid singing in the choir. That little kid is Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. He's in the little choir that day. So anyway, um, Margaret Mitchell has a black maid I mean, this is very interesting to me. Uh, and the, her maid gets sick. And Margaret Mitchell is very close to her maid. And she takes her around the hospitals trying to get her a bed and help. No hospital would take her. And, and the Black maid has to go back home and she dies for lack of medical care. Margaret Mitchell was very stunned by this. It was as if it snapped her out of the world that she had lived in. And mm -hmm. she, wrote, she wrote to Morehouse College and said, hey, I'd like to give some money to start training uh, black men and women to enter, to enter the field of medicine. Yeah. Uh, and she did, although she didn't want that news spread around town. She thought that she might lose friendships if other whites thought that she was helping blacks train, train in the field of medicine. Getting to Hattie McDaniel, she appeared in that role. She won an Oscar. It was a hard pill to swallow for many Blacks because it was a very stereotypical role. And she did play that stereo, stereotypical role to the hilt, uh, but her Oscar didn't help her. And with other roles, she sort of stayed in that field of yeah. mammy roles. Um, and she died. Uh, still playing made roles um and so and that's yeah. the story uh, yeah i mean had daniel 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's a it's a sad story, uh, but it 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 leads. I want to I wanted to talk a little bit about James Edwards, um, who is the who is the first uh, one of the first black actors to kind of break out of stereotype roles and um, and and show. Uh, somebody with a little bit uh, a little bit more depth to him, I think, uh, in, in terms of white, at least from the perspective of white filmmakers. Um, who, who was James Edwards and and uh, what was uh, what was so special about Home of the Brave uh, that uh, kind of struck a chord, not just with uh, white audiences, but also black audiences and black black actors? Yes, um, he was born in the Midwest. Uh, he went to Knoxville College. He studied drama. He wanted to be a boxer in life. He went out on the road. He was boxing for a few years, very tough life. He really wasn't that good. And so he went to New York and uh, he appeared in several plays. He was really good. People who saw him told him, you definitely ought to go to LA definitely ought to try to break into film. Uh, he went to LA, he found it very hard to break into film. He was a black man, he was very handsome. Stanley Kramer was a producer. Stanley Kramer had saw a play on Broadway called uh, Home of the Brave. It was about a soldier who happened to be Jewish, uh, who was fighting racism in the war. Stanley Kramer came up with this idea. And I think I'll take, I think I'll take Private Moss, who is the soldier. And I think I'll, I really think I'll make him black in a new version of this screenplay. And so Stanley Kramer was looking for an actor who could play the role of a soldier in World War II who has to deal with racist fellow soldiers. So he was gonna put a, a black soldier at the center of this story that he starts filming in 1949. Mm -hmm. Stanley Kramer was so nervous though, and his team was so nervous that they didn't tell the studio until they were almost finished filming that they had recast the role. And it wasn't for a soldier who was white and Jewish, it was for a soldier who was black. And it was the first starring role for James Edwards. The movie comes out, gets a lot of great uh, reviews Everybody is looking at the screen, walking out of the theater saying, who is James Edwards? Who is this, who is this black actor? He really, Sonny, was Sidney Poitier before Sidney Poitier. Mm -hmm. He was there, he was right on the cusp of stardom. He was there, handsome, suave, great screen presence, uh, and now he has a starring role in a movie, but he doesn't get he doesn't get offers to be a leading man uh, in his career. Just sort of starts to 
simmer down and slide down and uh, he's very frustrated. He starts drinking, he starts dating white women, studio chiefs uh, are very upset by that. Uh, he floats around Hollywood. He does little small roles here and there. Uh, finally, in the mid-60s, uh, he moves to San Diego and he starts writing screenplays. Um, then he gets a call uh, to appear in the movie uh, with George C. Scott in 1970. And it's called Patton. Uh, and he is the military valet uh, to General Patton in this movie. The movie comes out in 1970. By the time the movie comes out, James Edwards has died at the age of 51. A lot of sad stories about the struggle of black actors and many die too young uh, and he's he's one of them yeah yeah i mean it, yeah. it happens all the I, I i i was at one point keeping tally i mean just the number of actors who die in, in their 40s and in you know 40s. late 40s early 50s I, it was kind of astonishing it was i mean yes you are right and he was one of them, and um, I was just happy and that I could write, flesh his, his story out, um, and because he's one of many who died in the 50s, I mean, who flourished a bit in the 50s and then died far too soon. And as I said, he died in 1970, yeah. before he really seen how blacks, uh, you know, would start to have careers in movie making. Yeah. You know, that's a struggle that still goes on, but things certainly got better, much better than when, you know, much better than when he started out. Yeah. I, I mean, you mentioned uh, Sidney Poitier and he was like kind of the proto Sidney Poitier. But in your uh, in your book, I, 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 I may, maybe I'm, I'm misremembering, but I, I believe Sidney Poitier delivered the eulogy uh, or delivered a eulogy for Edwards, right? At his funeral? Not at his funeral, but he was he did say a lot of things about James Edwards when he died. And I think you're thinking of a moment in the book when Sidney Portier is in LA and he's talking about, he's talking about wonderful talent. Yes, yes. I have the quote here. I, I can just, I, I'll, uh, uh, this is, uh, is Portier. He says, all young Negro actors today owe him a debt of gratitude because it was Jimmy Edwards uh, who started the employment situation outside of the old stereotype uh, with his performance in Home of the Brave. Um, yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, it's a, a stirring attribute as I think an actor at this time could get from, you know, Sydney yes. you're exactly right. You are exactly right. It was, it was very touching, you know, and it showed that link too, you know, that link between, you know, I think Sidney Portier, he was cast in a movie called uh, Red Ball Express. 
a war movie. And it was exactly the kind of movie that James Edwards might have been cast in if rumor hadn't, hadn't got around that James Edwards was spending social hours with none other than Lana Turner, mm. a screen goddess, a blonde yeah. screen goddess. And the studios did not like that. But, you know, she was a friend of his and he was a friend of hers and things just went haywire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, why, do, why do you think it was that Poitier could make the leap and, and Edwards couldn't? I mean, was it just a function of society progressing a little bit more in the, in the intervening years or uh, specifically, I mean, the, the rumors about his love life? I, 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 because it feels, like, I feels, it feels like we're right on the cusp here and then we make, we, there is, there is a, a leap with uh, Sidney Poitier and, and Harry Belafonte in your, kind of in the, the narrative of this, this story. Yes, I think it happened, Sonny, and that is a, and that's a great question. I think it happened and because you had a few intense years, 1959, 1960, 1961, where you had Martin Luther King Jr. on the rise, you had A. Philip Randolph on the rise, you had in the president in 1960 uh, who got elected, who's starting to pay some attention to civil rights. You start having these rumors that there's going to be this march in Washington. Those rumors have been floating around all throughout 1961, 1962. And as we know, the march on Washington finally happened in 1963. So I think it was because Sidney Poitier, he came along at a time when foot soldiers were starting to march. Uh, people, people were rising up. They were tired of this Jim Crow uh, nation. Uh, and they were starting to uh, to rise up. And you also had somebody who was very talented. Sidney Poitier was very talented. You know, uh, he had trained on the stage. He knew how to act. You know, he was a very, very smooth, very smooth actor. Uh, and it is, I think, very important to acknowledge that those early roles, uh, uh, Lilies of the Field, for instance, a nice fable-like movie where he played a, a handyman who arrives at a church and helps five East German nuns finish building that church. His race is never mentioned in that movie, never. And so Hollywood uh, steered clear of race. That movie was important because Sidney Poitier, of course, became the first black man to win a Best Actor Oscar yeah. in these other field. He won his statuette in 
1964. Um, I want to I want to I want to talk a little bit about uh, um, before we get to Melvin Van Peebles, uh, who uh, the recently departed Melvin Van Peebles, who yeah, uh, uh, and and the movement that he kind of kicked off and that I think is still resonating today. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Porgy and Bess. Which is a mm-hmm. which is a which is a really interesting story here, um, it, it, both in terms of the the uh, the musical, uh, the the Broadway musical, uh, and the the film adaptation of it, and how it has kind of disappeared. How it is not not exactly a lost film, but a uh, a a recalled film. Um, it, it's a it's a fascinating uh, story here. Uh, uh, what was all right? So let's. I'll, I'll let you uh, uh, tell us. But what was what was Porgy and Bess, and and what happened to it? Why why can't we really see it these, anymore? Yeah, um, it was a film set on South Carolina's Catfish Row, and it grew out of this in this black opera uh, that was written and staged by and by George Gershwin uh, and. Um, there were many, many stage versions of it and it traveled around the country. It really was the, in a real way, the first colossal musical hit and that traveled in this country. Um, and beyond the it, country, right? I believe it played in uh, the USSR. Right. Yeah, it did. It did. And so, so many people so many people once again and imagined imagined black culture through what they had seen on a stage or on a screen. And so the studio, movie studio said in the late fifties, huh, there's still a lot of people interested in this as a film it's never been made as a film, opera, stage shows, it's still very popular. Uh, so we ought to make a movie. And they hired Otto Preminger. Uh, he was the director. And they got a cast, Sidney Portier, and Pearl Bailey, Brock Peters, Sammy Davis Jr., Diane Curl, uh, and they filmed this movie, though, however, by the time they had finished filming, it was already dated. Mm-hmm. Blacks did not want to see another Southern-dipped, racist-themed movie. Blacks wanted to see wanted to see something more sophisticated. Um, And the movie came out and it got lukewarm reviews. Uh, And then uh, word had filtered out uh, that the uh, Gershwin family no longer wanted to be associated with the movie. And so, in the 60s, the movie, it just started vanishing. Uh, and theater owners wouldn't show it. They feared that, and the family might sue them or something. Mm-hmm. And so the movie 
really, really simply went away uh, for many, many, many years. And, you know, it's kind of the story of the last of the antebellum epic dramas that Hollywood made. It was an all black movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was mostly, it was mostly all black, uh, you know, but it was sort of tinged with this sadness and with being out of date with the nation that now had many blacks starting to march and starting to move. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just really interesting to read the chapter on on this story and uh, and kind of how it went from being, uh, frankly, a, 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 at least this is my read on it, frankly, a, a fairly progressive, uh, uh, you know, Broadway theatrical production to being seen as a fairly regressive movie just 25 years later, 30 years later. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, right. You are right, Sonny. You are. Yeah, you are exactly right. When it first it appeared on stage, though, folks loved it. Oh, this is like new. This is great. The lyrics are great. The songs are great. You know, people were uh, humming, humming summertime. You know, the fish are jumping. People were humming the tunes, you know, from the Broadway play and the operas. I mean, various stage versions, though, in the 70s and the 80s certainly got better. I mean, they had more edge to them. They had more fight to them, but still there was this big monster out there and that was the movie. That was the movie. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, uh, all right, so let's let's move on to uh, the rise of Melvin Van Peebles, who uh, I think, you know, there's a big Criterion box set out there right now if you wanna, yeah. uh, if you wanna get caught up on the, the work of Melvin Van Peebles, uh, definitely should check that out. Um, but, uh, how did he how did he become kind of the founder the founding father of uh of uh, and and we can talk about this as well i i feel like you were um slightly hesitant to use the word black exploitation which is the kind of the the common uh usage for for this genre of film um but he is he is uh you know one of the great independent filmmakers and uh he has a he, he kicked off a whole movement let's let's talk about that uh, you are so right, Sonny. I was a little hesitant to use that word. Thank you. You are you are spot on. Um, okay, Melvin Van Peebles. He went to college in the state of Ohio. So did I. I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And Melvin Van Peebles went to Ohio Wesleyan. Um, anyway. He gets out of college, he goes to San Francisco, he starts driving a taxi cab, uh, he starts writing short stories, he wants to make films, he can't get any headway in San Francisco. Friends tell him he might like to go to Europe. He goes to France, uh, he learns the language, it's a very hard language to learn. He was a pretty smart cat. Uh, he has some, he starts writing short stories and novels in French. 
He starts writing these novels and short stories in French. He is influenced uh, by the new wave of French cinema. Uh, he starts hanging out on film sets. Uh, he gets a couple grants and he makes some small short story uh, movies, movies that were made from some of the short stories that he had written. And then he makes a film called A Three Day Pass about a black soldier roaming around France and meeting a French lady. Uh, that movie gets some attention. Uh, he gets summoned back to uh, Hollywood. Um, when he gets to Hollywood, he gets a movie offer and he makes a movie called uh, Watermelon Man. And it's a satire, it's a comedy. It's about a man who is white, who wakes up one day, looks in the mirror and uh, he realized some strange way he has turned black and he has to face the world that way. The movie was a hit and Melvin Van Peoples gets offered his second movie uh, he tells the studio he doesn't want to make that. He has an idea. Studio asks him what the idea is. And he says, it's a film about a black man who is something of a lover in the stud. And he's in Los Angeles. And he wants to, uh, he wants to protest against police uh, brutality and he's in love with black power uh, and he smokes dope. So the studio must have looked at Melvin Van Peoples as if he was out of his mind. And they told him that they didn't want to make that movie about somebody who doesn't like cops in LA and who smokes dope and who sleeps with a lot of women who happen to be white. And so Melvin Van Peoples walks out the door, he's heartbroken and he says to himself, I don't want this movie to die. And so he comes up with an idea that he's gonna go around and ask friends of his for a little money here and a little money there and a little money there and a little money there. And he hires no name actors, uh, uh, he has $500,000 to film this movie. Uh, he doesn't have enough money to hire a star, so he hires himself. Uh, he directs it and he stars in it. Uh, on a $500,000 budget, the movie ends up making $20 million plus. And so Melvin Van Peoples, in this short period of time, had shown filmmakers everywhere that if you believe in your film, if you believe in your script, that you can raise money, then you can bypass Hollywood because Melvin Van Peoples visited several cities. He hired a band later. I mean, the band was Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah. And they weren't known at the time. And so he went to black radio, black newspapers, into the theaters themselves on site. He would be there to the theaters 
And at first, only two theaters showed the movie, but then it grew and grew and grew, and it became this great hit. And Melvin Van Peoples, who we just lost recently, um, he became an icon. Following in the steps of Oscar Michaud. Right, right. And and he, uh, in turn, inspires a whole slew of films. I mean, you know, Gordon Parks, films and filmmakers, Gordon Parks and... Uh, and Spike and- Lee. And Spike, Spike Lee and and uh, you know it's an absolute legend. Um, again, folks should should check out the uh, the Criterion set if you if you haven't seen his films. Um, uh, I, I, I I feel uh, I do I do want to just talk a little bit about the term black exploitation because, like I said, I've, I felt I felt uh, there was. There's an interesting moment in in the book uh, when Julius Griffin is talking about his discomfort and distaste for these movies um, that that uh, I, I feel gets at a a real debate in uh, in in um, in certain circles about you know these the the role that these films you know play in terms of uh, public perception of African Americans uh, and and you know what what the uh, responsibility is the wrong word, but just just kind of how it how it plays. Could you could you talk a little bit about that and and your your own personal take on this and and how you um, see these films as, as uh, you know as part of the broader culture? Yes, you know when I was a kid in the '60s, and I would go to see movies, you know, and the stars who I saw on screen were. John Wayne, Lee Marvin, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda, Liz Taylor, Barbara Stanwyck, and Charles Bronson, Rock Hudson. All these people were on the 60-foot screen. And I, and as a little kid, fell in love with them. They all had one thing in common at this theater in my hometown. They were all white. I never and at the Garden Theater saw an actor on the big screen who was black. And then I went away to college in the 70s and I came back home and there was another theater downtown. It was called the Southern Theater. And they were showing movies like Superfly, Shaft, Foxy Brown, and uh, Bucking the Preacher. Uh, they and they introduced me to wonderful talents like Richard Pryor and Billy D. Williams, Pam Greer, Yafet uh, uh, Kodo, mm-hmm. Max Julian. I mean, it was a whole world, and I think that that moment between the 60s and the 70s told me that Hollywood had had two different sensibilities when it comes to films, black and white. You very seldom saw blacks in white films, but you would see whites in, in black films. There was more interracial mixing in the black films than there were in the white films. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so 
I thought that that was fascinating that even cinema echoed uh, in a way how segregated this nation has been. Now, with the term uh, black exploitation, I do uh, uh, have a problem with that term. And I do mention it because it grew out of uh, NAAC official um, who was upset that he didn't get in the marketing account for a certain movie mm -hmm. at the time. So I'm very careful about that. And also on the for real spectrum, it did introduce a lot of black talent. If you just look five years earlier, there was not a, there was not a cinema movement with black talent, it wasn't. So there was this very intense period between like 1969 and 1974, where you had a flourishing film movement with blacks. And I think it was extremely fascinating. It offered people an opportunity to get into the unions in Hollywood in, in its own way, it told Hollywood that people of all races would go see these movies starring starring blacks. Yeah, yeah. I uh, again, I really fascinating period in history here. Uh, everyone should uh, everyone should read up on it um we're running i we're i'm running out of time here i'm running up against the edge of the, the limit here we there's still so much to talk about um the the one thing i though the last thing i i, I just really want to hit on here is uh uh spike lee's do the right thing um and when spike lee's do the right thing come out comes out there's there's this moment where uh several uh white critics and right white columnists suggest you know oh this movie's dangerous it could incite violence you know we're worried about what what's going to happen and i, I want to use that just as a as a way for you for you to talk a little bit about uh the 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 overall lens of criticism and critical thinking and critical writing uh being essentially you know a a white one i mean being essentially a uh a uh a, a not a certainly at the very least not African-American lens um, uh, and and how that has kind of impacted how these films have been uh, viewed, you know, both by audiences and historically and uh, and and how that has been, uh, you know, how that has impacted filmmakers themselves. Yes, I think Spike, I think he's a very fearless, wonderful wonderful filmmaker, uh, extremely gifted, uh, but Spike also is aware of this. 60 feet outside the doors of any movie screen is this nation, how this nation rocks and rolls every day. 
how the country hums. And this country hums with a lot of racial problems. And Spike has found a way to put those stories on screen. Now, when other white filmmakers put stories on screen in that show violence, and the critics don't say, well, that movie's dangerous. That movie might ignite riots. But the critics in the 80s and the 90s said that about Spike Lee. And, and it wasn't fair. I just think that filmmakers, if they can raise the money and if they can get the production deals should make the kind of movies that they want to make. All filmmakers need heroes. All filmmakers need somebody who's going to champion them. Uh, you know, there are many uh, white heroes in this book who have championed Black filmmaking. Uh, recent example, I think that you uh, have to mention Brad Pitt. Uh, his production company really cares about stretching their arms rock wide and to bring in all types of filmmaking and filmmakers. And I think that it is important. I mean, look, it's only been in the past year where we've seen TV commercials that have shown black and white couples, married couples, interracial married couples. And so if that's only happened in the last year, it's fairly easy to understand why Hollywood has been so reticent and nervous to deal with race. Uh, and I think when you deal with race, there's been a lot of violence in this country when you deal with race and it's still going on as we know. Uh, and so, Cinema, you know, cinema has to entertain, you know, as you know, folks say, no business, no show, show business. Movies have to make money. Spike Lee's movies have taken on various serious subjects and they've made money. Now, I think we, we went through those two seasons, 2015 and 2016, when there were no no black Oscar nominees. And then that started the hashtag Oscar so white, um, you know, which is a sad part of the story, but there's also much triumph with these new filmmakers, uh, new actors who are rising, Ryan Coogler, uh, Michael B. Jordan, um, Ava DuVernay, you know, there is a lot of talent out there and they need the opportunity and they need the space to be able to make their films. Yeah. Uh, I always like to, I always like to close uh, the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything you want, uh, if you think people should know about your book or the state of filmmaking in general. I mean, I'm, uh, I, I like to, I like to see what I have failed to ask in my, uh, in my, my terrible questioning, but I, I like, I, I, is there any, is there anything you think folks should know? Uh, my goodness, no, I think it's been a wonderful show. I think 
cinema binds us all as a nation. And, and I'd been a foreign correspondent uh, and I'd go into a foreign country and within a day of being there, somebody in France or Italy or South Africa would ask me about a certain film from my country. Uh, and so cinema tends to bind us all. Um, one of the things I think is fairly, I don't know, lovely is the right word, but it's nice about this book is that, and you see this figure floating through the book a lot. And because he was a film critic and that's James Baldwin. Mm. Uh, he's in this book a lot. He's always talking about movies in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s in the 80s. And so it was nice to be able to give him uh, his due as far as his knowledge about cinema. Yeah. Yeah. James Baldwin, one of the great, uh, not even really a film critic, just one of the great writers about film. You know, he just yep. it, it's yeah. not, uh, is his his stuff is always worth reading um i thank you very much again for being on the show mr haygood i really appreciate it uh the the name of the book again colorization 100 years of black films in a white world uh get it at amazon barnes and noble wherever books are sold um and uh i think it would make a great christmas present for the 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 movie lover in your life um I, my name is sunny bunch i will be back again next week with another episode of the bulwark goes to hollywood see you guys then mm -hmm.